Good morning. All right, all right. It is um, always good to worship in the, the presence of God's people. Um, I always consider it a blessing and a, and a privilege to be able to, to open God's word um, before you and, and sit beneath it with you um, as it does its transforming work. Um, today we come across another heavy passage in Luke. And uh, my hope is this, that uh, although there are strong warnings, that we would find assurance in Christ. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are a good God, one who sees and knows all things. Uh, you know what is to come, and you warn us because you love us. You care about us. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you will remove all distractions that would hinder us from hearing your word and draw us, Father, in and transform our hearts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if anyone has been on uh, social media for any amount of time, you'll know that uh, you can find some wild things on the Internet. You, uh, you, you can hear some pretty crazy stories out there. The uh, other day, my wife was uh, scrolling through Instagram, and she saw a post, and someone asked this question, what is the, the worst service, church service, you've ever been to? And uh, as you can imagine, there were uh, plenty of responses. But one kind of jumped out. This guy, he said, uh, this one time at youth camp, they announced that the youth pastor had died in a car wreck on the way to the camp. And while we were all crying and sobbing, out of nowhere, we hear his voice from the rafters where he was hiding, and he starts to teach about hell and destruction. Now, I, I would imagine that that would be a very traumatic experience. I, I, could only, I could only imagine the range and the roller coaster of emotions that these young students were going through. So uh, when we plex, plan our next youth retreat, uh, Matt, make sure, Kilo crosses that idea off the list. But one thing I'm grateful for is that our, our, our Savior does not need to deploy such tactics to convey difficult information. He, he is bold. He is honest. He is transparent. And uh, he does it with grace and with love. And we see that in this passage before us. There is a shift going on in Jesus' ministry, and now he's beginning his ministry of warning, a ministry of warning. And we can tell because in chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through 13, verse 9, this is one single discourse, one message that is punctuated by a few interruptions. But throughout this entire discourse, there is an underlining theme. There is something that he's getting at that he wants them to understand. He wants them to be aware of a coming judgment, a coming judgment. If we just look through this entire discourse, you can see it throughout in verse 5. He says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. In verse 20, he says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. In verse 40, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at a time that you do not expect. Verse 46, the master of that servant will come and on, that, on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. 
13, verse 5, he says, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And lastly, in 13, 9, he says, Then if it should bear fruit next season, well, good. But if not, cut it down. As you can see, Jesus wants his disciples to be ready for this day of judgment. If we were to summarize this text um, in a simple statement, the main idea here is that the disciples of Jesus must resist hypocrisy and properly fear the triune God. Resist hypocrisy and properly fear the triune God. Uh, let's look at verse 1. He says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, back in Luke 11, verse 29, he tells us that the, the crowds are increasing. But now we're getting to the point where there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people pressing in to hear Jesus. And they came for a variety of reasons. I mean, after all, his teaching was astonishing. His Miracles were amazing. Uh, his life was peculiar, and who doesn't like a little bit of drama? You see, uh, by now they, they knew about the beef between him and the Pharisees and the lawyers. They knew about the conflict, and some of them just came to say, hey, I want to see how this is going to play out. They didn't have desperate housewives or soap operas or telenovelas, so this was it. How is this going to work? What is he going to say? And... The crowds were so large that they pressed against one another. Many would look at that and see the, the large numbers as a sign of a fruitful or a, a successful ministry. However, God is not impressed with numbers. He recognizes their surface level attention. He recognizes that it is temporary. So as he's looking out at this crowd and sifting through this mixed bag of people with their varying reasons for coming to hear him, his eyes fixes, he fixes his gaze upon his disciples. It is to them who he preaches this message. Those who are truly open to hearing and learning the word of God. Those who have not committed their hearts to the false teaching of the Pharisees. Those who actually see him as the light of the world. It is to these folks that he gives this message. And what is the first thing that he says? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Last week, Pastor Manny did a great job explaining how Jesus viewed the religious leaders of his day. He obviously rebuked them for their self-righteousness, for their insincerity, and for their deceptiveness. But here he's taking all of those elements and categorizing them under one umbrella. He says hypocrisy. They are hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask, someone who appears one way externally, but internally they're completely different. One commentator says it like this, the Pharisees posed as paragons of virtue, but in reality they were masters of the masquerade. So it should uh, come as no surprise to us that the, the word hypocrisy is actually a transliteration of a Greek word which means stage actor. These religious leaders were actors, pretenders, performers. That is not what we are called to be. 
Uh, and the word hypocrite has a certain sting to it. It's one thing to be called fake or phony or fraud or even a liar, but hypocrite has a certain amount of disdain to it, a certain amount of disgust. It's really the desire to impress people, which leads to a double life, a double life that is both deceptive and destructive. Hypocrisy is rooted in, in both pride and in fear. It's prideful in that we want other people to see us as better than what we really are. There's no room for humility when you're walking in hypocrisy. It's rooted in fear in that we are more concerned about the opinions of men than we are about the judgment and commands of God. It's also contagious. That's why our, our Savior, he, he likens it to leaven. It spreads. Leaven is typically a substance, usually yeast, that is found inside dough and it causes the bread to rise. And it only takes a small amount of leaven to permeate the entire loaf of bread. This analogy is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.8 when he writes, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He uses it again when he's talking to the church at Galatia. In Galatians 5.9, they're trying to convince these new believers that they need to get circumcised in order to be in the family of God. And he's like, no, 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 that's not necessary. Don't follow those practices. Don't follow those ways. And he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Hypocrisy is like leaven. And if we are to be true disciples of Christ, we must examine ourselves and resist the urge to live a hypocritical lifestyle. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus makes these proverbial statements that really highlight why hypocrisy is futile. He says this in verse 2, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Uh, notice in verse 3, he uses the pronoun you twice, which implies that even the disciples are not impervious to this temptation to be hypocritical. This is not just some Pharisee things. No, this could creep in your heart. This could show up in your life. This could manifest in your actions. You see, we are all capable of leading a double life. We all have this inclination to want to, be, to want to appear righteous before the sight of men. If that was not the case, Jesus wouldn't have given this warning to begin with. So Jesus is warning us that there will come a day of exposure a day of judgment, a day in which all things will be laid bare before God. And he is reminding us that God is omniscient. He sees all things. There is nothing that flies under the radar when God is watching. And guess what? He's always watching. You see, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, they're describing the word in God, and it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentionalities of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God has never been 
surprised. He's never been tricked. He's never been caught off guard. And we deceive ourselves if we believe that we can somehow deceive God. We may be able to fool man, but God will not be fooled. That is why hypocrisy is futile. We also see that this day of judgment will be a public affair. You see, the light of God's truth exposes all things. Sometimes the sin of man is exposed right away. It's unfortunate, but we often see headlines of religious leaders and pastors who we love and respect commit grievous sins and are forced to step out of ministry. It's tragic. Other times we hear news about leaders who we admire long after they die. We hear about what they had done while they were living, and we are mortified. How could he do this? And they tarnish their entire reputation. And sometimes people just take their sins to the grave. Nobody knows. But there is coming a day when all will know. There is coming that day of exposure when no sin will be hidden. And all who are not in Christ will be fully exposed and judged for who they are. He talks about this private room and this housetop. What's, what's whispered in these private rooms? In the ancient days, a lot of times the houses were uh, made out of this clay brick type material. And it was easy for robbers to wet the side and dig through to try to steal their possessions. So it wasn't uncommon for them to create an extra room in the middle of the house for an added layer of protection. And that's where they would put their valuables and um, all of their uh, ornaments and things that they care deeply about. And you would think in that space, you could whisper something and nobody would know. But that is not the case. He's saying, what is whispered in that room? Your safe room. Even that will be exposed. That's a sobering thought. This should drive us to be honest and transparent with ourselves, with others, and obviously with God. In verse 4 through 7, we see why we should fear God. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Notice he starts this warning off by addressing his disciples as friends. This is a warning out of love and out of compassion. You'll notice that the tone here is a lot different than last week when he was rebuking the Pharisees. He's warning them because he loves them. Friends, orient your fears away from men and towards God is what he's saying. We need to fear God the Father because he is an eternal judge and he has absolute authority. You see, there's limits to what men like these Pharisees could do. Yes, they could threaten you. Yes, they could arrest you. Yes, they could even kill you. But after that, there's nothing else. This is actually a word of encouragement because what man can do is very finite. We need to have the mind that Paul had when he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 17 and 18, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It is this promise, it is this truth that empowers believers to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. 
It is this truth that enables believers to endure all types of persecutions for the sake of Christ because they understand this. One, their life is not their own. And two, this life is not all that there is. When we reorient our fears properly, we recognize that man cannot take away the eternal hope we have in Christ. We also learn that God is the only person who can sentence someone to hell. Because God is holy, because he is omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipotent, all-powerful, he, he is the only one qualified to sentence people to hell. Many folks have a problem with this verse. Some even professing Christians. They don't like hell. God, my God would never do that. Uh, the problem is that they often settle for unbiblical views, some of them like annihilation, which basically teaches that if someone dies outside of Christ, there is no punishment. You just cease to exist. You just are annihilated. That might sound a little more palatable to some, but if that were the case, this warning would make no sense at all because essentially God's judgment would be no different than man's judgment. He could do no more than what man can do. This view strips God of his righteous title as righteous judge, and it removes him of his authority. It denies his sovereignty. And so Jesus gives this warning, not out of malice, but out of love, because he warns those he loves. And he knows this is a heavy word, so he follows it up with a word of comfort. He goes on to highlight how God cares about the most minor details of this world. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Sparrows. Simple analogy. Here it says that five sparrows are sold for two pennies. Matthew's account says that two sparrows are sold for one penny. So if you merge them together, you find out that you could buy four sparrows and get one free. <laughs> but even that one sparrow, even that one sparrow does not fall without God noticing. It's free. We just give this away. God cares. He cares. He cares about that odd sparrow. And he cares about you who are made in his image. He cares about you who bear his name. He cares about you who carry the gospel message. He cares about you who are indwelled with his Holy Spirit. He cares about you. God cares. He goes on to say that even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Uh, on average, uh, the average human has roughly 100,000 strands of hair on their head. Uh, by show of hands, how many people have counted all the hair on their head? I know for some of us that might be easier than others. Matt, you know, you feel me? But this goes to show that God knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. He knows the intimate, intricate details of who you are. So one, this shows how much he cares, but it also shows that he is just to judge. There's nothing that's hidden from him. In verse 5, we're told to fear him, the one who can cast into hell. And just two verses later, in verse 7, 
we're told, fear not, for you are of more value than the sparrows. It seems like there's a contradiction. Do we fear him or do we not? The answer is this. When we fear him in reverence, we don't have to fear him in judgment. Let me say that again. When we fear him in reverence, we don't have to fear him in judgment. There's freedom in fearing God. We're not worried. We're not anxious. We're not wondering. We're not questioning. We can trust and have assurance in him who is mighty to save. Next, he tells us why we ought to fear the Son. Verse 8, he says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In this section, Jesus is telling us what our disposition should be towards him. It should be one of acknowledgement. This word acknowledgement is not merely acknowledging his existence. It encompasses confession and profession. We need to confess Christ. We need to receive him as both Lord and Savior. We must acknowledge both his death and his resurrection. We must confess his deity, confess his lordship, confess his authority, his message, and his mission. We must be fully vested in him. And he will acknowledge us before the angels of God. He will be invested in us on that day. The angels of God is another reference to the day of judgment. We know that because in Matthew 24, he says that. Matthew 4, 24, 30 through 31, he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming down from the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. The angels will be present on the day of judgment. He goes on to say in Matthew 25, 31 through 32, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goat. On that day, there will be a division. Some will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, while others hear, I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. As the people of God, we should long to be acknowledged by Christ. Therefore, we should not fear man. Jesus is fully aware that there is increasing hostility towards him and towards his message. And he knows that those who follow him are going to be on the receiving end of that hostility as well. Persecution is a coming. He tells us that back in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He doesn't say if they hate you, but when they hate you. Hostility, opposition is to be expected. And so, we must always remember that following Christ will come at a cost. We are to confess him to our friends, to our families, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to our acquaintances, to our classmates, 
We are to acknowledge and confess Christ when it is convenient and when it's not, when it is popular and when it's not, when it is socially acceptable and when it's not, when it is politically correct and it is not. We are always to profess Christ. We ought to fear the very notion of denying him before men because if we do, he will deny us on that day. This is yet another call for us to orient our fears properly. We now shift to the Holy Spirit, why we should fear the Holy Spirit in verse 10. He says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, This verse right here has been the subject of much confusion and fear over the years. But what Jesus is doing is quite simple. He is making a distinction between the criticism of him and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You see, we can be forgiven when we criticize Christ and repent. And we ought to be thankful for that. If criticizing Christ was the unpardonable sin, none of us would make it into heaven. Because before regeneration, before conversion, before our our being born again, we all speak a word against Christ. We are all antagonistic towards him. If not through our words, through our deeds, if not through our deeds, through our thoughts, that is the default disposition of man. But thank God there is forgiveness for that. Thank God there is mercy for that. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that's, that's a little bit different. There are several interpretations as to what this means, but I think two of them rise above the rest. And so I will give you those two. First, some scholars would say that the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin is attributing the miracles of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to the work of Satan. We see that in both Mark 3:28 and Matthew 12:24 when Jesus speaks about this unpardonable sin is in the context of him doing miracles. And they're rejecting him. And they're accusing him of being a tool of Satan or being uh, possessed by an evil spirit. So I think that is a reasonable interpretation because it's so clearly defined in Scripture. Uh, Other scholars would say that the unforgivable sin is the persistent and relentless rejection of the saving work of the Holy Spirit. This view focuses not on a single moment, but on the totality of one's life. Are you always rejecting the Spirit of God? We see an example of that uh, when Stephen rebukes the Pharisees in Acts chapter 7. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ear, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. For those of you who know the rest of the story, you'll know that shortly after that he was stoned. They did not turn in repentance. They solidified their rejection of God and his message. So regardless of which view you lean towards, one thing is sure. We ought to be very mindful, very careful about how we speak as it pertains to the Holy Spirit and how we respond to his saving power. If we don't want to incur judgment on ourselves, we would do well to have a healthy fear of the Holy Spirit. That is a heavy warning. And yet again, Jesus follows it up with a comforting truth. Verse 11, he says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers of the, and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus finishes or completes this thought by reminding us that the Holy Spirit is present in the life of believers. And he is willing to aid us in our time of need. He defends us and he teaches us even in the midst of persecution. This doesn't mean that we don't have to pray or study or be ready to give a defense of the hope that is within us, but it does mean he will empower us and he will never leave us nor forsake us because he is God. We ought to fear the Holy Spirit, but also embrace the Holy Spirit. So what are we to to learn from a passage like this? What are we to take away? This passage teaches us that when we properly orient our fears towards the triune God, we can resist hypocrisy. We can trust that the Father will care for us. We can trust that the Holy Spirit, that the Son will acknowledge us. And we can trust that the Holy Spirit will empower us. You see, if we don't live our lives with the end in mind, it's going to be very difficult to have a healthy fear of God. That's why we're given these warnings. Early in my Christian walk, I was meditating on this passage along with others and thinking about Judgment Day, how heavy it is. And in that process, I was able to write a poem. And this poem highlights three individuals who, like the Pharisees, they trusted in things of this world rather than the promises of God. It's a sobering poem, but this poem is called, It Ain't Working." I want you to picture a person deep down hurting because they finally realize the world's lies ain't working as good as they used to. You see, this man has a lot of cash and he's not ashamed of it, but deep down inside, his pride is starting to love it. He's made a name for himself so he has a little clout, nice car, big rims, dope yacht, nice house on the beach, and can't nobody reach him because his ego is inflated. When asked about faith, he arrogantly stated, I really don't care too much for the gospel. Relies on his own wisdom, not the words of the apostles. Miracles and signs went beyond his comprehension, so he bought into the lie that God's a man-made invention. He put his trust in himself and his faith and worldly knowledge. Thought he was a good person because he sent his kids to college. Believed in evolution, the scientific solution. Didn't fight against sin, but he fought against pollution. Go figure. I guess you could call him a modern-day Captain Planet, but he didn't have any powers. Matter of fact, he devoted hours to to debating Christians about sacred traditions. He had scorn for the gospel, and he hated the Great Commission. This man died one day and found himself before the throne. And with tears in his eyes, he realized that he was all alone, and he was just another person, deep down hurting, because now he finally sees that his wisdom ain't working as good as it used to. This girl steps on the scene and she is a beauty queen, model by profession, she is every dude's dream. Stays up in the mirror putting on that Maybelline, but her beauty is her God, not the only risen king. She has a deep, deep passion for the fast life and fashion. Keeping her body tight is her only reason for fasting. Had a little fame, so she was raking the cash in, but didn't have the spirit, so her flesh wasn't clashing with anything. So she would try anything. She would buy anything, completely unaware that she's defying the king. Controlled by the flesh when she tries on that dress. 
enticing men to lust. She's thinking, I'm the very best model in the industry. She ain't who she pretends to be. Exterior is beautiful, but her soul is dying inwardly. She said, I'm spiritual but not religious, so I don't need church. Didn't want to feel conviction because she knows the truth hurts, but thought she was a good person because she gave money to charity, but didn't trust in the blood that gives spiritual clarity. She'd rather be up in the club, center of attention, but she was riding shotgun with Satan in the spiritual dimension. Got in a car accident one night, found herself before the throne, and with tears in her eyes, she realized that she was all alone and she was just another person. Deep down hurting because now she finally sees that her beauty ain't working as good as it used to. Self-deceived, this man believes in the lies that he's portraying. Quoting scriptures all the time but not believing what he's saying. When folks ask him how he's doing, he would always say, I'm blessed. But deep down his heart was dark and he could really care less about Christ, about the cross, about the Father who gives blessings. Went to church every Sunday, but he never learned a lesson. His confession was a front because he had no true devotion, and his faith was based solely off his feelings and emotions. But just going through the motions is self-defeating in the end. Yeah, he went to Bible study, but he still loved his sin. He even found a godly wife and thought that she could get him in, but didn't bear no godly fruit to verify he's born again. Everyone thought he was a Christian because he wore a righteous mask put him on the deacon's board, and they didn't even ask. Had a heart attack one morning, found himself before the throne, and with tears in his eyes, he realized that he was all alone. He was just another person, deep down hurting, because now he finally sees that his mask ain't working as good as it used to. You see, in the grand scheme of things, there ain't nothing we can bring when we stand before the king whose blood can redeem This world's going to pass away and nothing's going to last, not money, not wisdom, and not even a mask. And not serving God is just as bad as hating him. He's coming back for a faithful bride, not for folks who are just dating him. So if we really have to ask what's the purpose of living is to love God with all your heart and trust in his provision because you don't want to be that person deep down hurting when you finally realize the world's lies ain't working as good as they used to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for a sobering word. We thank you for uh, encouragement and promises. Grateful that you care for us. Grateful that you warn us. Grateful that you know the end from the beginning and you prepare us. Grateful that you are with us in the most difficult trials grateful that you have rallied your people together to do life amongst one another so that we can live out this Christian life with fidelity. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Be with us. Make fertile our hearts that we might bear much fruit from the word that you provide. Amen.